You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. This morning, I want to focus on what I think is like the most important image we should have in our minds when we think about our relationship to God. There's all kinds of images the Bible gives us, all kinds of metaphors that it uses for our relationship to God. Like, there's the one where God is king and we are servants. There's the one where God is shepherd and we are sheep. All of these images are biblical and important and have their own kind of weight that contributes to our big picture idea of who God is and who we are in light of who God is, I'm saying the central and the most beautiful is this, the image of us as adopted children. That is the highest calling we have as God's people. That is the richest, most beautiful image that the Bible gives to us As God's people. And it's such a necessary corrective to what is, I believe, an insidious lie that just about everyone, if you're part of this church and you sort of gravitate to churches like this, it's a lie that you've probably been swallowing for a long time. That lie is that we function primarily as God's workmen. You hear this a lot in our language and there's nothing wrong with the language unless this is your kind of complete picture of how you relate to God, right? The language is, I just want to be used by God. I just want to do great things for God. I just want to, you know, help fulfill God's mission in the world. All wonderful things. I hope you all feel that way. But if that's the complete picture, you have an incomplete picture and you're missing the best part. You guys seen that movie, Horrible Bosses? I think there's a second one called Horrible Bosses 2. And um, it's a funny movie. I think I can say that. It's not one you probably want to watch for family movie night, certainly not in our household with little kids. It's, um, the humour is a little bit off at times, but uh, it's funny. It's hard not to laugh. Um, anyway. <laughs> mm. I think it's funny anyway. I think partially it's funny because I've had one of those bosses. It's, it's basically about really bad bosses, just ridiculously horrible bosses. Um, and I've had one of them. My first ever real job um, was at a shell service station um, in Warrandyte. And my boss was a terrible person. <laughs> Like, God loves her, and she's made in his image, but she was terrible. And I'll tell you one example of a story which I, I still, like, it's hard to believe this to this day that this actually happened. But she, like, okay, so she never wanted me in the first place to work in her service station. There was a group of us that all graduated from Shell Service Station School together, and... Um, and all of the local managers kind of get to know the people who have graduated from Shell Service Station School. And obviously I wasn't like the best student or something. Uh, just, I just wasn't the one she wanted. So I had that going for me. 
And, um, and she seemed to think that um, I wasn't a very thorough uh, employee, particularly when it came to cleaning things up before shutting things down at, I don't know, 11, 12 o'clock at night. So she had a problem with my sweeping, which I maintain to this day, I'm one of the better sweepers going around. Um, but she thought that I wasn't sweeping enough underneath the shelves. So one night, I noticed that the broom was nowhere to be seen, and I called her and said, hey, I can't find the broom to do the sweeping. It's time to close the service station, trying to find the broom. And she said, huh, gotcha. If you had swept under the shelves, you would have known that I hid the broom under the shelves. (laughs) And I said, swept with what? She was a bad boss. She said to me, um, after we, I, I went to the kind of higher management and let them know about this incident, and they went, best, please. But in the end, we sort of made our peace. She said, I never wanted you, but so long as you work hard, we'll be okay. My fear is that's the paradigm we have for our relationship with God, our Father. Like, he doesn't really like us that much, but he'll put up with us so long as we get the job done. Just check yourself for a second and see whether that might be, even if you wouldn't say that, is that how, does that kind of idea colour the way that you relate to God? I know that there's nothing in me that's lovable. I know that I've let you down several hundred times this week. I know that I'm not doing a very good job of fulfilling the Great Commission, which is the whole reason I exist. I'm just thankful that you'll tolerate me so long as I'm doing my best. As I said, I think that distortion, that lie, is one that many of us have swallowed and we live out of it and it needs to die today. I love what Brennan Manning says about this. He says, how is it then that we've come to imagine that Christianity consists primarily in what we do for God? How has this come to be the good news of Jesus? Is that why Jesus went through the bleak and bloody horror of Calvary? Calvary is where Jesus died, the the hill that Jesus died on. Is that why he emerged in shattering glory from the tomb? Is that why he poured out his Holy Spirit on the church? Ridiculous. There's a much better story for us to hear this morning. There's news that is actually, in fact, good news. And so this morning, I just want that distortion of the gospel, the one where we're primarily seen as kind of moderately effective slaves being tolerated. I just want that lie to be swept away in the flood of God's love revealed to us in his word. So you've got a choice this morning. You can believe lies that you've imbibed 
and lived out of, or you can believe what God says. Here's a word. Here's a word to believe. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. And we are. I love that. I just see John as an older man, one of like the only remaining apostle, the only remaining disciple of Jesus, the only one who lived to any great age without being killed. To see him writing this to, to the church that he loves in his latter days and summing it all up this way. Friends, brothers, sisters, see. Can you see it? See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. He can't believe it. That's what we are. This is astonishing, all right? If you don't get it just from his astonishment, his exclamation point, we actually are, then you probably haven't understood the depth of this doctrine of adoption. We have been made God's children. That's what we are. Adoption, this doctrine of adoption, this idea which is God's idea, this thing that doesn't exist in just the theological abstractions but actually is the way that God relates to us, this is the most beautiful good news that you could ever hear. Being a Christian doesn't mainly consist of or isn't mainly conceived in the truth that I am a sinner who has been forgiven. That I deserve hell, but I've been given heaven. It doesn't mainly exist in the realm of legalities in the courtroom. It does exist there, but there's more. Being a Christian means I am God's child this is how J.I. Packer says it in his wonderful book Knowing God he says adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers adoption is higher than justification right the legal you have been forgiven on the basis of Jesus dying in your place wonderful doctrine beautiful Good news. But it's higher than that because of the richer relationship with God it involves. You start start allowing adoption to colour the primary way you see God and who you are in light of who he is. You start to see it all through the scriptures. This is everywhere. 
Like in Ephesians chapter 1, this is what it says. God predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. So many of us come to that and trip over the predestined bit. Mm, he predestined us. Yeah, that's a, big, that's a big doctrine. Spend the rest of your life mining that doctrine. Never get to the bottom of it. But it's not the most astonishing part of this passage. The most astonishing thing is the very next part. Adopted as sons. Adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself. There's a familiarity there, an intimacy that I, man, I just, well, I just know for a fact that no one in this place, myself included, has fully comprehended that truth. I think one of the reasons why this whole idea of adoption is so powerful for me is because I've just seen the power of adoption. I've seen it happen before my eyes. My younger sister is adopted. We adopted her as a five-month-old orphan from Seoul in South Korea. Oh, there we, there we are. First day. Um, uh, that's me and my, my three bro- uh, two brothers and my younger sister. I'm the one rocking double sweatbands, by the way, which I don't know how that hasn't come back into fashion. You might want to consider it. You can also tell who I am because of the huge gap between my teeth. That was the first day that Annalie, Joy, Song Air, Smith was with us. And... Uh, I just tell you, like, from that very second, I was the first one through the doors at the airport. I was the first one to grab a hold of her and embrace her. And from that very second, I have never doubted, not for a second, whether she's my sister or not. Okay, and I don't mean legally. I know legally she's my sister. I remember... There, that came into some doubt because um, a couple of months after or a few months after we adopted my sister, my mum died. When my mum and dad went over and collected her from South Korea, we didn't know that she had cancer. But then I think there was some question over whether we should have this baby uh, in our family because my mum had just died. And I remember going to the court where it was sort of decided that, yeah, she was, it was okay. But I don't mean legally. I mean like in every meaningful way, she is my sister. That has never been in doubt, not for a second. If you just operate at the surface, then there's all kinds of doubts. Because she doesn't look anything like me. 
She looks a lot more like Jamie than me. Right? She just does. She's from Korea. Growing up in Diamond Creek in the late 80s, she was the only Asian person most people had ever seen. (laughs) It wasn't apparent at all on the surface that she was one of us. To this day, when I go and hang out with her, like she lives in Richmond now, I go and hang out with her and we go and get, you know, coffee together or whatever, everyone assumes that we're married or that she's my girlfriend. It doesn't make any sense that she's my sister on the surface. But adoption doesn't operate on the surface. Adoption isn't called into question at the surface level. It pays no attention to how you look. The reality of adoption goes so much deeper than that. Every privilege afforded to me as the son of my father is afforded to her. When my dad drops dead, everything that I get, she will get. That's what Paul says about one of the outcomes of our being adopted is that we're co-heirs with Christ. That is everything that belongs to Christ belongs to us. Are you kidding me? I think we got a more up-to-date picture from, uh, there we go, that's my younger brother's wedding. That's where I was a couple of weeks ago. Rose, thorns. <laughs> Adoption is powerful. Even the weak, shadowy echoes of adoption that we have in our own experience are powerful things. So it is when it comes to our relationship with God, our Father. Do you know hardly anyone in human history ever used those terms referring to God before Jesus said, this is how you should refer to God? No one dared. He says the primary way you relate to God, the creator, sustainer, sovereign, king over all of human history, the primary way you relate to him is as father. The doctrine of adoption is so powerful. It takes us from the general Imago Dei, we are all made in God's image. Every single person, irrespective of how they feel about God, is loved by God because they're made in the image of God. Every single person that's ever lived has dignity, value and worth on the basis of the fact that they are made in God's image. It takes us from the general, which itself is amazing, to the specific, to the exclusive. You are not just made in God's image. You have been made God's son. You've been made God's daughter. You are God's child. You can call God father, papa, daddy. Galatians chapter 4. All right, let's have a look at this. When the time came to completion... 
God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This adoption, this whole process of adoption, happened long before you ever came on the scene. It was decided long before you ever came to life. This plan for your adoption was hatched in the loving community of Father, Son and Holy Spirit in eternity past. And then when the time came to completion, right, at the right time, just the right time, God sent his son into the world so that we might receive adoption as sons. And the proof, the seal of that adoption is God sending the spirit of his son, his own spirit, the Holy Spirit, into our hearts. And on that basis, we can cry out, Abba, Father. All of that was done quite apart from your involvement. You know, my sister had no idea the plan that was being hatched to bring her out of an orphanage and into a loving family. No idea. Contributed nothing to it. Didn't happen on the basis of the fact that she was, I don't know, particularly good looking. Had the right kind of genes. A lot of potential. It was all sheer grace. And so it is with us. Sheer grace that enables me to approach the holy, righteous, ruling, reigning God of the universe as my daddy. This is what Henry or Henri Nouwen. This is what he says. Calling God Abba Father is different from giving God a familiar name. Calling God Abba is entering into the same intimate, fearless, trusting and empowering relationship with God that Jesus had. That relationship is called spirit and that spirit is given to us by Jesus and enables us to cry out with him, Abba Father. So it's pretty binary, guys. If you are here this morning and you've been saved by grace through faith, that means you've been given the Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides in you. It's the seal of your redemption, your justification, your forgiveness, and your adoption. And it's by that Spirit and on the basis of his presence within you, that you can cry out to God, Father. 
Galatians 4.6. Let me say this bit again. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You can call God Father because Jesus does. Hmm. So long as Jesus... crazy so long as Jesus and for as long as Jesus is worthy to call God father so can you so let's just be super clear everyone look at me for just for one second if you have the Holy Spirit of God residing in you then you can boldly approach the throne of grace in the very same way that my boy Judah and my little daughter India boldly approached mine and Renee's bed this morning and jumped all over us. It feels... Almost sacrilegious to say it, but it's true. (laughs) This access that you have, this intimacy that you've been invited into, has been given to you on the basis of what Jesus has done for you and is in no way dependent on your performance Can you imagine, I just had this, this real, sorry, I, I just lost you there for a minute because I just had this like um, tragic image in my mind of my sister from 1988 until now waking up every morning and like being anxious about whether she had done enough to keep her adoption status. Can you imagine how, that would just be the most, terrible existence. You'd be better off back in the orphanage than to spend every day thinking, have I, did, I, did I contribute enough? Did, was I well-mannered enough? Did, did I fit into the family enough? Or even to discharge the duties of a daughter in that way, like I'm, I'm doing the dishes because I'm part of the family, but also just because, you know, I just need to make sure that I keep my adoption status. Makes me want to weep thinking about that prospect. How many of us live that way? Anxiously doing all that we can to keep ourselves in the love of God. And the whole time, he's just a good father sitting there going, it's done. It was done before you ever came on the scene. I sealed it with my own spirit. Now come and jump on my bed. All right, Romans 8. Here's where I want to finish us off, all right? Romans 8. You know it. It's just one of the best chapters in the, 
not in the Bible, just in literature, in all of human history. Romans 8. I want to start with the adoption bit, all right? This is verse 14 to 16. He says, All those led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, anxiety, worry. Am I really, am I, can I keep my status? Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the rest of that chapter flows out of that truth. You start with adoption and then the riches of the rest of Romans 8 can actually be true. So that's what I want to do. I want to look at the, the, the next bit, verse 28 to 39. And uh, yeah, we might just have enough time to do this. All right. So verse 28 to 39, I've got four Ps. Four Ps. That's called alliteration. If, you, if anyone were wondering whether I'd been to Bible college, I just proved it. Four Ps. As adopted children, we are purposed, provided for, prayed for, and protected. Truth be told, I was going for five. I just couldn't stretch it. But I got four. <laughs> My kids are laughing at me. This is the best day ever. Honestly, that's all... That's pretty much all I hope for. It's the best I can hope for. <laughs> all right, four Ps. First thing I want to talk about is the fact that we're purposed. So on the basis of our identity as God's children, the truth that is true, irrespective of how you feel about it, we are purposed. Verse 28 to 29. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Who are they? Like, does God have other sons and daughters? Are they maybe angels? Who are they? Yeah. What's that, Phil? Who is it? Yeah, it's you. Ridiculous. It's just outrageous. Phil is God's brother. Jesus has a brother named Phil. It's crazy. God's plan in predestining Phil for adoption as his son was so that Jesus would be the first among many brothers and sisters. And the purpose of God in every single thing that happens to you in your life is to make you more like your brother Jesus. Everything that happens in my life, everything. How many things? All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, for 
those he knew, foreknew, that means those he loved back in eternity past. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God is using every single thing that happens to you to conform you to the image of Jesus so that you look like him. My sister is 33 years old now. She still looks like nothing like me. She spent all of that time with us and she looks nothing like me. She talks like me. She has more interest in football than I ever will. She grew up in a household of boys. Like, she's pretty tough. She works for Hawthorne Football Club. It's like the whole, she's about as far from soul as you can get. But she still looks just like a Korean person. With our adoption, part of God's plan and purpose each day in everything that happens to us is to make us look a little bit more like our brother Jesus. There is purpose in every little thing that happens to you and God uses it for your good. This is not karma. We're not getting what we deserve. Thank God. Our culture, our Western culture loves to throw around karma like it's a thing. People who actually believe in karma are really annoyed at Westerners who do it because they don't get it. They don't understand, like, you got drunk last night, you're coming back as a worm. This is not like, this is not someone cut you off and then they got a red light. That's not how karma works. It's much more brutal and it's eternal, right? So thank God that's not how things work. This is not just like the random universe having its way with us. This is our Father dealing with us in every circumstance as a loving Father, working all things, including the crappy things, turning them for our good to make us more like his Son. Even when he's disciplining us. We don't have time for this, but read Hebrews 12. God disciplines the ones he loves, just like a loving daddy does. All right, so we're purposed. We're also provided for, verse 30 to 32. Stay with me, guys, all right? Those he called, or those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. It's almost a sin just to sweep through this without being like, blown away by every word, but we've got to keep moving. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him grant us everything? Paul loves using this way of um, making a case. He takes like the biggest thing possible and says, the small things are easy. The biggest thing possible, the most outrageous provision that, that God could ever make for us is giving his only son for us. So what are you sweating the small stuff for? Do you know what happens every morning when my kids wake up? Not once in their lives, seven years or ten years, not once have they ever woken up and been like, oh, 
man, I'm really anxious about whether, whether we're going to get breakfast this morning. I just don't know. I don't know whether dad's going to pull the cereal for us or not. Maybe there'll be a lock on the pantry door this morning. They never think that way. Why? Why would they? Why would they wonder whether we would give them something tiny and insignificant like cornflakes when we've given them everything we've got? It never occurs to them to sweat the small things, be anxious about the little things. If God has given us his own son and there is nothing bigger in the universe that he could give us, then how will he not with him give us all things? If an evil father like me can provide my kids with what they need, how much more will a father like that give us everything we need? That's exactly what Jesus said. Remember Luke chapter 11? Do I have that? Luke? Yeah. He said, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Lols. If he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who will ask him? It's just the same argument in reverse, right? If you can do these tiny little things, how much more will your perfect, gracious, Loving Father give you even the greatest gifts like his son and his spirit. Or Jesus in Matthew 6, again, same thing. Don't worry. Red door, don't worry. Saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Why? Because he's your Father. <laughs> he knows this stuff. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be provided for you. Don't worry about it. Purposed, provided for, prayed for. Verse 33 to 34. This is all just out of one little part of one chapter. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. We're going to have a time of intercessions after we sing after this sermon. Suzanne's going to intercede for us. She's going to come before the only being in the universe who can actually do anything about anything, who doesn't have illusions of control like we do, but actually has control. She's going to intercede for us. And she's not going to be the only one doing it. Jesus also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us, who can bring an accusation against you? Well, to be honest, tons of people. All the people you've ever annoyed or hurt, sinned against. We could line up a whole lot of people for each one of you guys, even the little ones, bring accusations against you. Who can bring an accusation against me? 
probably everyone in this room. Sermons are too long for starters. I've hurt many of you. Who can bring an accusation? Like me, I can bring them. I can bring all kinds of accusations about myself. Satan, his name is the accuser. That's his full-time job. All kinds of accusations. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect, the ones who he loved and chose, justified and adopted? All kinds of people can. Who can bring accusations that make any difference? No one can. What's the first verse of this chapter? Anyone know it off the top of your head? Amen, brother. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is, those who have been adopted into God's family. I think John Bunyan said something like Satan brought the first um, Satan had the first word but Jesus has the last Satan must be speechless in the presence of Jesus' intercession How encouraging is is it to know that even now, even nursing a mild hangover or even having yelled at your wife in the car park or even having cheated on your taxes last financial year, whatever, in spite of all of that, Jesus is praying for you, interceding for you. How much encouragement should that give us? Robert Murray McCain, he said this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Just employ your imagination for a minute and hear the prayers of Jesus for you. And be encouraged. Last thing. All right, last one. Fourth P, you are protected. Because you're adopted, that means you're protected. I'm going to read verse 35 to 39 and say nothing about it because nothing needs to be added. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or coronavirus, or bankruptcy, or divorce, or just the point is add in anything. As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. It's an illustration of the, just how desperate the situation of first century Christians was. This is not an abstract theoretical question. This is Christians being torn apart, sawn in half, fed to lions, right? They're asking this question. 
No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Summary. Because you are adopted, you are purposed, provided for, prayed for, and protected. And that image of a beloved child in the arms of a perfect heavenly father is the image I want us to have whenever we think about who God is and who I am in light of who he is. Let's pray. Father. Father. (laughs) It's too good to be true. We would have settled for master. We would have settled for vaguely well disposed towards us. We would have settled for willing to tolerate us. Instead, we have Heavenly Father overflowing with abundant, inexhaustible, unconditional love for us. See what great love the Father has for us that we would be called children of God. And so we are. We praise you, Abba Father. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.